Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. You know, I always say that one of my biggest thrills in doing the show is when returning authors join me a second time, a third time, some a fifth time. Lamar Giles, I'm thinking of you. And so today I'm very happy to reintroduce you to Joanne Hart. Uh, hello, Joanne, Hi, and Lee. welcome back to Bookstew. Yes, thank you for having me back. Well, um, this time it's Usually, I guess, my, when authors come back, it's because they're doing a second book of fiction mm -hmm. or a second book of nonfiction or whatevs. You, you have two completely different books that have been discussed on Books Stew. Yeah. So just to remind you all, the first book was called Stamford 76, A True Story of Murder, Corruption, race and feminism in the 1970s. That just about covered everything. Yeah. And that episode was in November of 2020. Now you're back with a collection of short stories. Yeah. How, um, and I also noted as I read the short stories that these stories range from 2006 to 2022. Yeah. So what, what makes you come to the point when mm -hmm. you realize that you have Time. a collection? So, um, yes, so they've written over a long period of time um, in between book length um, projects like Stanford or novels. Um, so, so you do sort of short stories uh, to, get, to take a break from a novel or until the next the book idea comes and it's good practice. Um, that you can do take a lot more risks in short fiction. You can just play around a lot. And so I'd had a number of stories. I have many more short stories than this that I've written, but this particular collection came to me when I realized I had all were linked thematically with climate change. That basically this is, um, you know, High Wire Act and other tales of survival. This is all about, these stories are all linked with how everybody, humans, the natural world, the animals, how they are surviving through climate change or will survive or not. So Yeah, because there's, I mean, there's some dystopia in there where you go into yeah. um, environments that are maybe years away, I don't know, decades away, yeah. and they're, they're kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, so that's my first time, those two stories, which are fairly recent, are the first time I've done, that they call them, they, they're dystopian, but they're also referred to as speculative fiction. Ah, uh, gotcha. That you are speculating what will happen if we don't change our ways or you're speculating what will happen and we have adapted to a changing climate. So um, it's just sort of where my mind had gone. You know, it's like, um, what, what's going to happen? When you think a lot about climate change, you can't help but think about the future and what might happen and how will people survive? And, and yes, and one is the, the actual title story is a little dark, um, yeah. So um, you live in Gloucester. Mm -hmm. um, how much do you think living in Gloucester and mm -hmm. living on the ocean, mm -hmm. a couple of the stories are yeah. set in uh, an owner of a business who mm -hmm. is completely dependent on the ocean for the success of the business and fish waste. And yep. um, how much of an influence do you think is Gloucester mm -hmm. in your writing? Yeah, so climate change, 
and, and rising seas go hand in hand. So I can see from my office window, I can see the harbor and uh, our coastline is changing rapidly. You know, it's um, coastlines, of course, change all the time anyway, but they, but the rising, consistently rising waters are going to have like permanent uh, repercussions, especially considering how many homes are built right on the water, how many roads are right along the water. All that infrastructure and, and property has got to, is going to change. I mean, uh, even from quite a few years now, um, there are homes that you have to have cash to buy in Gloucester because you can't get um, a mortgage without insurance and insurers won't insure them anymore for rising. For at all? At all. Well, they'll insure for fire, they'll insure for theft, they'll insure but for that, but for they won't insure for, for water. Not? So, you know, if your insurance comes in a package, you, you, are, you can't get a mortgage. So and all those new condos that they built by Good Harbor Beach? Yes, I know. I don't understand how that, um, that might be far enough away. Right now, these, these, I'm talking about homes that are really on the water. And I think that's on the other side of the street. Okay. So it is. Yes. So but right, people are still buying these houses, right? People are still right? buying that, especially Good Harbor. I mean, that's going to be the first to go. I mean, so um, it's already going. And so, th so there are repercussions like that. There are a lot of questions about what happens if you're on the water and your property disappears. Who pays for you to move inland? And uh, will that happen? before your property gets washed away. Right. I grew up in Long Beach, New York, which oh, yeah. took the, bore the, the main brunt of Superstorm Sandy. That's and, right. And when I go back now, I go back every year, there are very few houses that have not been raised up. That's right. And aesthetically, they're, I think they're hideous. Yep. But you know, that's what you're gonna have to do. That's right. And some, as far as I know, no homes were ever, like the government didn't buy anyone out of homes. It's a barrier right. island. Right. They've planted grasses, they've made dunes, they've done a lot of good right. protection. But who knows what's going But for how happen. long? Yeah. I know, it's like people near, right near me, um, I, as I said, I can see the harbor, but there is a road between me and the harbor. Well, they're gonna raise that road 18 inches. <laughs> right, and, and what needs to really happen is that the water needs to come and go. It right, needs to right, come right. and go underneath it and, and not be, you know, an 18 inches is really just going to be more of a, you know, a, And the a houses problem. in Long Beach that they raised are all designed so you can throw open doors and garage doors and the water just passes. Oh, wow. Through. But that doesn't what kind mean of way is that? <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the wind isn't right. going to destroy right. them so, anyway. So, yeah, so there's um yeah, so living in Gloucester um and plus I live in an uh a sanctuary. So we have a, you know, so I'm, nature is always like right there looking at me. I'm very aware of things like even insects that there haven't been enough as many insects as there used to be. And of Wait, course, no. Tell me, there's no more blackheads, and I would say we thrilled. don't have those. The greenheads, they're yeah, the green they're heads, in, that's um, right. West Gloucester and Essex, for now. <laughs> um, but you know, insects. There's that's food. That's food for the birds. So if there's no insects, there's fewer birds. I mean, you know, everything is so tied in. One thing changes on the sanctuary. Everything changes. So you so. Know. Um, 
since the Stanford 76 book was so completely different, that was more of a, a almost a memoir because you lived That's uh, right. through this, this horrible murder and right. you kind of did some investigating. Right. So were, were you writing these stories at the same time? Yes, because it took, uh, Stanford was 20 years of research and writing. So I would pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. I'd pick it up, write a novel, put it down, pick it up, put it down, write short stories. I would do, so the, there were many short stories that were written during the period I was still working on Stanford, yes. So when, um, when, you, when the book was sold to Black Lawrence mm -hmm. Press, did they, did you say, I have these 18 stories, or mm -hmm. did they say, how, like, how does that whole thing so work? So, th in this particular case, um, I submitted this to a contest. So, this one, really? this is the winner of the Hudson, Hudson Prize. Hudson Prize, I yes. saw that, congratulations. So that's how that happened. Uh, ordinarily, yes, um, you would be submitting short stories, and they would be working like, what, what else have you got, and try to, but that, in the case of a, winning a contest, uh, it stays as, you know, there's a lot of editing, but the, but no more stories go in or out. It stays as that. Okay, so right. how about your own editing? As yeah. you were assembling mm -hmm. the 18 stories, since some of them were written in like 2006, yep. did you, how did, how did they look, did, how much revision did you have to do if you right. had put them aside for a while? Yeah, so they all were all published. You know, that if you go to the back acknowledgments, you can see over the years they've been published in literary magazines, which is where, you know, the lifeblood of a literary fiction and, and literature is small literary magazines across the country and the world. So they have always, and it's also something that you do, you write, because novels, books take so long, you write short stories and then submit them, you know, it's sort of like, it just reinforces that, well, yes, you are a writer. It's not just <laughs> something that happens every five years. It's like you constantly. So, um, so all of these had been published, and so, um, and but putting together was still like I, I, I read articles and went to conference panels like how to assemble your story collection, and in the end, I still just like. You know, I just had that theme of survival, so there was always that. And the, like, but order? I had no idea. I, you know, I just tried to, I didn't know what I was doing, and I just did it, so. Well, I think for not knowing what you're doing, yeah. you did it <laughs> very well. It's really an impressive collection, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, at first when I started reading, the first two or three stories are very, they're dark, mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh, like when will there be good news in here? But um, you do have some stories that are just in mm -hmm. here that are may deal with climate change, but they're more positive. Mm -hmm. They're kind of with delightful characters. So, right. what is your favorite short story out of oh, the eighteen in here? Yeah. Yes. So, well, first of all, I do did try. It's hard sometimes in times of climate crisis to have hope, but I did try to put a little hope in every story, no matter how dark. And as I said, the title story is pretty dark. So my favorite, my <laughs> favorite, you know, they're, it, they're all my favorite when I'm writing them. And then the, the next story I write, it's like, oh no, this is my favorite. <laughs> um, I like, 
let me see. You know, actually, here, you know what the one of my favorite in this collection is actually the last one because it is so it, it it's sort of a palette cleanser mm. and it's sort of like it, it is the one with the most hope and it was um, it it's as every story is also stylistically very different and so that was one where as I said, with short fiction, you can take many more risks than you can. Let's elaborate on that because yeah. I, I always think of short stories as you have to have a beginning right. and a middle and an end. Mm -hmm. And to me, the end is the hardest part because, right. you know, some shorts, I take short story classes. I've been taking them for five uh, years just on how to read a short story, mm -hmm. not how to write. Right. And so many of them just kind of fade. Like right. they, and I like a story with that has a definite ending because right. how else, if it's in a collection, you want to be able to move on to the next one. That's right. So, I, so when you say take risks, let's talk yes. about that. So that was... Um, Yes, they do all need an ending, and that is the hardest part. So, but but stylistically, they can be, um, you know, in second person. They can be disjointed, you know, that sort of jumping around in thoughts and emotions. Uh, you can't do that for the length of a novel. That would be too distracting. Mm. Although there's plenty of novels out there that, <laughs> that do that, that are, um, you know, that that jump in, uh, you know, are blocks of thought and that there's a lot of white space on the page. I think for me, it's easier to read something that's like that in a shorter form. I, I, because it's uh, really interesting, takes a, a more work from the reader. And as if you're writing and, you know, if you're reading to as a relaxation at the end of the day before you go to bed, you don't want to do a whole lot of heavy lifting in terms of, you know, following a certain style and point of view. Like, uh, you, like uh, when you're done being happy is, you know, a second person. So it's always like you, it's never I, it's never they, it's like you. That's a hard one to do in book length fiction, uh, but, but, I, but fun to do and fun to read. I so think. point of view is much more flexible in a short story than in a novel. Yes, yes, I, I think it is that you can just play a lot more with things like point of view. Do you, um, do you read while you're writing? Yes, I read extensively. You know, I usually have uh, multiple books by my bedside. Um, since, and sometimes because I write, there's so much science in my fiction. There's a lot of science in here. Some are um, like Good Job Robin. That one was actually, when it was published in uh, Slate.com, it was uh, published with a, an, an article written by a scientist to talk about the science in the story. Oh, really? Yes, and um, let me see. In the very first one, Reef of Plagues, was a commission story for Berlin Literature Festival. And then I went to Berlin, and it was it was translated to German. I couldn't really, and it was uh, read by an actor. And then I'm on stage with a scientist. Wow. And we are all discussing the science in that story. And so I read a lot of science because if you're writing about like climate change, you've really got to get the science right. 
you know, you can't like have somebody say, well, that's not true and that's not true. Well, yes, it's fiction, so it's all in my head, but the science is always correct up to the point. So that, so, I mean, when you think about fiction versus nonfiction, right. um, I can't remember who it was who said it, that they were discussing whether they liked to, whether fiction or nonfiction was easier. Mm -hmm. It was Richard Russo. I saw yeah. Richard Russo and Ann Patchett oh. um, speaking at the Brattle Theater, and, oh. and, and they were discussing that, and Richard Russo said, Fiction is so much easier. You just make stuff up. Yeah. And Ann Patchett said she felt fiction was harder. So I thought that was really interesting. That's I had right. not thought of those two perspectives. Well, because mm -hmm. I don't think of most writers as writing mm -hmm. fiction and nonfiction. Right. They either kind of stick to this lane or they stick right. to that lane. Yeah. So do you still get a thrill when you get like an acceptance notice from us for a story you oh, submitted? Oh, yes, it still is every single time, you know, because it's like, um, well, one, you want them to find a home, so you, so, you know, they're like orphans. You you're try <laughs> to find a nice home for them. So when you get the acceptance, it's you know, for a short uh, piece of short fiction, it's like, oh good, it's going to be happy here. And um, there's many, many literary magazines. A lot of them are uh, electronic now. Uh -huh. There's good and bad. I always like a paper thing. Um, and it's nice to have on my shelf. I can't put um, you know, electronic magazine on my shelf of my short stories, but then it's so much easier to share once it's right. online, that, uh, that it reaches a much wider audience, like Slate.com. I mean, well, Slate.com isn't really a literary magazine. They just have this particular column, but um, it's just easier to share with everybody. Okay, well, since we're, we were talking about your favorites, I did um, mention two stories that were my favorites, but yeah. I'm going to ask you to just uh, give us a brief reading of whatever yeah. you decided upon, yes. if that's okay. Yes, and I, I chose yours, um, Piece of History. And a Piece of History is, one, is that there are two or three of the real estate stories in here. So there are, I, f I forget, two or three real estate stories that uh, for a while before the real estate crash when in like 2008, so these early ones, I was, um, I would just like find these real estate ads and then write a piece of fiction based on the ad. Oh my goodness, yes, that's what Andre the Third did oh. with um, House of Sand and Fog. Really? He had read a news story oh. about a, a real estate dispute between oh. Uh, the person who owned the house and the people who were buying the house, oh, and wow. he created that whole That's novel out of that. That's about there. Yep. Yes. So it's almost like uh, there's a. I, I subscribe to this uh, site online called Zillow Gone Wild. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Zillow Gone Wild, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's what, like, the real estate market was so crazy, and there's just a lot of drama in the real estate. True. Right. So um, that's. So this is one. Um, that where I read re the ad, piece of history, and the piece of history is the name of the ad. The ad actually opens up saying piece of history, buy your piece of history. And um, I, I will read that first and read a couple of pages of the story. But the, you know, I'd read these ads and think, what? You're gonna live next to a waterfall? What are you, <laughs> are you crazy? You know, and so, um, 
that's what was sort of the impetus to. But you know, you see those ads and you're gonna live next to a waterfall? Oh, now I wanna live next to a waterfall. <laughs> you know, there's the difference between the practicality right. and the yearning of living in a cool place. Right. Which this story really brings out. Right. So, piece of history. Restored mill tucked into a narrow gorge, sitting alone with an undisturbed view of the waterfalls. The constant roar soothes body and mind. The combination of glass, timber, and stone creates an unforgettable set of living spaces. Call Leslie at Brancaleone Realty today. Don't miss out. Warren stood looking through the picture window at the intensity of the natural world. The gray water exploding down the falls, thick and churning with dirt, eating away at both sides of the gorge. What strength, what power. If the old wooden water wheel were still attached, what a sight that would be. A clod of mud still clung to the sleeve of his camouflage rain gear, and he flicked it into the flagstone hearth, a direct hit on the damp white logs. From above, rubber-booted feet pounded down the stairs, and then he heard his wife run into the kitchen. Mika, he called, but she seemed to not hear him. He couldn't even hear himself, what with the rushing torrent below and the rain slamming on the slate roof above, not to mention Fergus yapping at his side. He raised his voice when he saw Mika dart through the hall again. Wait a minute, Mika. Stop right there. She didn't stop so much as redirect her energy, whipping into the living room as if she might charge right over him, clutching baby Faye under one arm like a pink football. In the other hand, she held an unzipped diaper bag. Mika was tall and usually quite beautiful, but right now, dressed in a yellow rain suit with her blonde hair loose and unbrushed, she looked like a bedraggled Valkyrie. She stopped abruptly in the middle of the timber frame room and looked up at the wrought iron chandelier, taking a deliberate step out from under it before turning her frantic attention on him. This had better be about death or dog shit, Warren, otherwise I don't want to hear about it. Warren was so thro thrown off by her coarse attack that he forgot what it was he wanted to say. Then with a jolt, she dropped the diaper bag to the floor and headed to the leather sofa, upon which sat the baby's car seat. Sweet Jesus, she said, as if she just spotted a lifeboat, and moved swiftly to strap Faye into her little carrier. Soft plastic squares of disposable diapers had been thrown from the bag on impact and were now spread out around her feet. Without even looking, she kicked one out of her way with a rain boot, and it skidded across the wide pine floor. She stepped on a rubber giraffe toy and it squeaked in terror, but she didn't even seem to notice, so intent was her struggle with the car seat straps. And shut Fergus up. Aren't things bad enough? Things aren't bad, Warren said, flustered by her irrational behavior. You're just making them seem that way. And I'm just gonna stop there. Yeah. Okay, so um, I am not gonna ask you to reveal the ending of the story. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna ask um, viewers and readers to pick up a copy of your book so they can find out what happens because it's a very suspense, mm. suspenseful story even though you kind of have an inkling of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, where is the book available? Uh, the book is available anywhere you buy books. I mean okay. you buy directly from Black Lawrence Press, uh, bookshop.com 
Org, I really like. Yeah, that, me too. I've been using them a lot. Oh, there is it carried in Gloucester and um, yes, the Gloucester at the bookstore okay. and um, and you know some brick and mortar like Barnes and Noble will have it. it it's around. Okay, um, as if you didn't know, yeah. we're trying. I'm trying to avoid Amazon, and right. I think that uh, many authors are. Yeah, you know they're juggling it, their mixed feelings yeah. about it. So um, tell us about your next novel, which I hope you'll come mm -hmm. back for oh, next so year. It's called Arroyo Circle. Yes, Arroyo Circle is um, very much a climate crisis uh, novel. Um, starts with wildfires, ends with floods. You know, the <laughs> our life. Biblical. We it live is in a just biblical our age. Life and. It is, um, has to do with a homeless alcoholic scientist and um, a woman who he befriends and has to do with a, a baby um, who is, um, somebody sees this, our protagonist put a baby in the trunk of a car and uh, it turns out that she didn't do that. She works for a hoarder and so she was putting kitty litter. Back of a car, but anyway, she gets uh, involved with the police and the legal system, and things become a mess. And uh, and then in the middle of the book, the pandemic arrives, and so everybody. And so I was writing it before the pandemic, and then when the pandemic came, and I just worked the pandemic right in. It just fit perfectly. It's like this is end times, everybody. Here we go. It's like this pandemic showed up right at the right time for me to include it yeah. <laughs> in my book. We've I've talked to every author who's yeah. been on about the impact mm -hmm. of um, of COVID on their writing, mm -hmm. and um, I think. The only p ones I've spoken to who ha don't feel like they've been directly impacted mm -hmm. have been uh, authors of children's books uh. and YA because, mm. um, you know, they're, I don't know how, you know what children's books are like. They're very fanciful. Right. Um, unless they're for maybe middle grade kids, they're not going to deal with they'll have maybe like a little crisis in them right. that gets resolved easily by your parents hugging you or something right. like that. But everybody else has been, I think, just completely maybe thrown off track by how do you deal with this? Do you put it in? Do you leave it out? Do you set it in 2019? Right. right. So, um, perpetual 2019, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. after, <laughs> after a few years, 2019 is going to just not, it's not going to work anymore. Exactly, so. yeah. So, so it's been f fascinating um, and sad, of course, miserable for everybody but watching you know people who make a living writing trying mm -hmm. to put the right put it in the right in the right context exactly. has been as i said 9-11 was another moment that wet those everybody writing novels it's like oh no now what do we do right you know because ooh, you can't ooh, i'll have it. to find this page and and put in there and then the planes hit the towers right. and, <laughs> i mean like what are you gonna and do then our lives fell apart right. you know and but i think um this summer, no matter where you live, has really been a wake-up call um, mm -hmm. for all of us, whether you want to wake up or right. not. Exactly. And um, I think your your these stories really personalize what um, it's. And the book has like eighteen different stories with people who are dealing with this, but um, the feeling that we have to deal with this mm -hmm. and we just can't put it off anymore is really universal, I would mm -hmm. say. And I think 
you're, you're, mm -hmm. these, this collection really reflects that. Oh, good. The I good. think it was um, kind of a, a, just another nudge to me to mm -hmm. wake up and try to do whatever I can. Yeah, and yes, and governments, get our governments to do, because it's too big for individuals. Right. It's far too big. You know, all individuals can do is like vote for the governments that are really going to knuckle down and get this done. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you again for joining me, and I hope we'll hopefully see you in 2024, yeah. 2025 with Arroyo Circle. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joanne. Thank you, Eileen. This has been great. And um, to uh, viewers and listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Joanne Hart, and I hope you will seek out her book with the fantastic title, mm -hmm. Highwire Act and Other Tales of Survival. Have a good night.